Welcome to the Bureau Briefing, a podcast by the Bureau of Digital, an organization devoted to giving digital professionals the support system they never had. Each episode, we're going to talk to a member of our community doing awesome, inspiring things. Now for your host, Carl Smith. Hello, people of the Bureau community and beyond. It is so nice to be talking to you today. It's the week after Owner Summit, and it was phenomenal. So many great shops getting together to help each other learn, share, and just continue to improve. That's kind of the promise of the Bureau. We also launched membership last week, so that was pretty fun. We're seeing a lot of great responses to that. And the Digital Services Outlook Survey that we put together with our good friends at Promethean Research. Now, Nick Petrosky is here today to talk with us about the report that came out of that survey. And I got to tell you, we're going to go into how 2018 was, how 2019 is looking, and some of the shockers that we found. I also want to take just a minute to thank our good friends at MailChimp and at Vogsy. You know, together, they helped us put on a great event in Austin last week, and we're so appreciative of them. But with that, let's get on with our conversation with Nick and talk about the Digital Services Outlook report. About two months ago, I guess, uh, I got in touch with Nick Petrosky, who's the managing director of Promethean, which is a great research firm. And Nick reached out to me and said, hey, you've got this great community. I've got this great skill set and great team. We would love to do some work together. So we did. And we're going to talk about it today. But first, welcome to the show. Appreciate being here. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for all the work. Uh, there was some some really crazy insights I didn't expect. And if it's all right with you, Nick, I think we just go through it. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. So one of the first things was uh, we had about 170 shops reply. And we saw that a lot of them had been around for quite a while, right? Now, the, the, the makeup of them was we had smaller shops that made up about 27%. We were calling those studios. There were fewer than 10 people. We had small shops in the 10 to 25 range, and that was the bulk, like 47%. Medium in 26 to 50 range was 16%. And then the large shops, greater than 50 people, were 10%. And that was kind of the same makeup I'm used to in the Bureau. Uh, that was my gut feel. It felt right. But the thing that kind of got me was when we saw how old these companies were, how long they'd been around. And 92% had been around more than five years. And 62% had been around more than 10. Um, that kind of got me. I was like, did not realize that the shops that were hanging out were that established. Like I knew, I knew some that were, but I didn't know they all were. So was there anything when you started seeing the responses come in that just took you aside and you were like, whoa, didn't expect that? Yeah, I, I think it's the thing that really threw me off in a, in a good way was just the health of the companies that were responding. So usually you see, you know, a few that come in, they're good. A few come in, they're bad. Uh, a few come in and everything's just on fire and they're sitting there just shivering. Like, am I, <laughs> is my company going to die? Uh, but when the responses started rolling in, I kept, I kept looking through them and I kept waiting for those companies that said growth is falling off a cliff and we're never going to be profitable again. But you, you just didn't see that. Uh, the, the vast majority of them were, were healthy uh, just across the board. Well, see, this, this reminds me of something somebody said last year. So we put out a blog post, which had kind of our 12 predictions for what would happen in 2018. Everybody does those things. 
but evidently ours were super positive. And the person shot me a note and just said, hey, you're calling this a state of the industry, but I don't think that's right. I think it's the state of the bureau. And they used this phrase, the bureau effect. And basically they were saying that anyone who's part of the bureau has made a decision that they want to work with other shops, share what they're doing, tell the truth about what's not working so they can get better. And as a result, lift up everybody in the bureau to that higher level, to which I said, hell yes, right? right. I'm like, okay, let's call it the bureau effect and slap a TM on that thing. Because if we all work together and we have some way to show that it's even better, but again, it's just a gut feel because we don't know what's going on in the industry overall. But do you think just, and I know it's not data and you're a data person, but do you think there's something to this in terms of the bureau effect? Yeah, there could definitely be something there because you're, you're dealing with a group of companies and individuals that have said, hey, I'm interested in being better. I'm interested in improving our skill sets, improving our teams, figuring out best practices. And we've, we've looked at this industry for about three years and on the whole, Best practices are are pretty hard to to you know come by. Everybody <laughs> says they have them, but you know what what are those true best practices that that have taken twenty years to learn? And I think that that bureau effect is, is the facilitation probably of the transfer of best practices. Oh, that's that's awesome. I, we used to when I was running my shop, we used to call things industry standards just because we knew they couldn't find anything else. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, industry standard, net 10. That's industry standard. What? Well, show me that I'm wrong. So it's a, But that is one of the things we've talked with uh, people in the community about too, is we do have this opportunity to kind of set what the standards are, to set what the best practices are based on seeing what's working kind of across the board. So that's, yeah, it's, it's one of the things that just gets me the most excited about the potential that we have as a community. Now, we also saw that everybody reported that they grew with their year-over-year revenue in 2018. Now, the largest shops, the, those with more than 50, grew almost 30%. And it kind of stair-stepped down to the studios with fewer than 10 people who were kind of almost up to that 10%, like somewhere between 5 and 10%. Was there anything there that surprised you? Because to me, this seemed to kind of make sense. Yeah, the, the surprising piece with that is usually your large organizations have been around more, uh, longer. They're mm -hmm. the older ones. They're, it's taken time to build up and get bigger. Um, so you naturally think that they're going to be slower growing. You, they, they don't have as much market to go capture. Uh, and usually you see the smaller ones are the ones that say, well, we'll have a you know thousand percent year over year growth because we went from yeah. you know, one million to ten million. Um, that was that was vastly different with this. You saw these large companies, some of which have only been around for a little while, and and they were going gangbusters. They were growing twice what the medium sized firms are. And I think a lot of it is that figuring out what you're doing and what you're good at. And that, that takes a lot of time. That takes a lot of, you know, uh, effort to figure that out. And you don't figure it out until you're past that 50 employee mark a lot of times. Well, and that's one thing that we've talked about in the Bureau for a long time. Uh, between 20 and 50 employees, we used to say, is kind of where shops go to die. Because you get past 20 and suddenly 
the Fred knows how to do everything model or Martha can show you all of the history model doesn't work because those people are just not able to keep running it. So you have to get more official systems. You have to get some level of structure, all these things that you weren't doing originally. And when you start to do that, the people who are there at the beginning start to get disillusioned as to what's going on. So they leave, right? Causing more turmoil. And uh, we used to say it's a race to 50, you know, <laughs> it's like, because if you can get to 50, you can get enough uh, cash flow, enough revenue that you can figure out the systems. But you also have this culture struggle because you're bringing in people from the outside who now are in charge. And I mean, there are all these interesting things around that. Uh, so it, it's now that you mention it, I'm like, going, oh, wow, that is kind of kind of interesting. And then the, the thing that really kind of just punched me in the head, um, <laughs> not the gut, but the head was uh, this idea. Not idea. It was data. Nick, it was data. Um, generalist shops revenue grew 30% faster than specialized shops. And, you know, we were talking about it at owner summit. We've been talking about it in the community that specialization is the way to go. And I still think that, but I'm curious with the generalist shops, like how did we define that if you were a generalist or a specialist? Yeah. So, so I'm with you. I, I, I definitely think that the, the specialist way usually is easier. Uh, as far as how it was defined, we let them self-identify. So we didn't throw out a definition. We let them ah, say, are okay. you a generalist or are you a specialist? And so it, it didn't really, did you see once they identified that was because we asked them for a number of services as well, or, or right. what they did. Did you see that generalists generally had five or more services or anything of that nature? Well, what we, what we found when we really dug into it, we found that um, the ones that self-identified as specialists grew slower. We've been over that. The ones that offered fewer services, though, uh -huh. definitely grew faster. There, there was a positive relationship between fewer services offered and higher growth rates. Okay. So in that sense, they may be seeing themselves one way. Right. But the reality is actually back into what we kind of thought. Yeah, or they could be defining themselves as uh, specialists or non-specialists in different verticals. So they could be okay. ones that just handle oil and gas or right. you know, a certain industry. And, and that's very different for, uh, than you know, the type and number of services that you're offering. Right. And then, but we did see that specialists were slightly more profitable. Right. So what does that say when you have generalists who are seeing this revenue growth, some of it quite large, uh, but they're not necessarily making more money than they did? Well, it, it kind of, you, you always tie it back to what your goals are for your firm. And a lot of times when you're growing, you that comes out of cash flow. You take a hit to not only cash flow but profitability. Yeah. Um, so you can dip into negative profitability for for a while uh, to get those higher growth numbers. And you know the converse is true also. If you're if you're really good at um, you know web dev and design and UX UI strategy, uh, you're probably going to be good at providing that service too. Not just doing the work, but the process of providing that service. 
So that's going to impact your profit margin if you're better at doing that. Well, that makes sense for sure, right? You get better at it. You do it more. You right. learn to eliminate the fluff. You, I mean, it's like Robert Sphere was saying in his talk that he gave about process for profit. You figure out that you can do this in a certain way and eliminate six hours of waste right. and not lose any quality. So, so that makes good sense. And it's interesting when we do look at the profit margins for the different sized companies, those studios, again, with fewer than 10 people, they had great profit margins. Yeah. And so did the large shops with greater than 50. But the the 10 to 50, when we put the small and mediums together, it wasn't that they didn't experience, you know, a, a good profit margin as part of that revenue, but they didn't do as well as the two ends, right? <laughs> the right. two extremes of large and small. Well, what is that about? I mean, that, so that's, that goes back, I think, to the figuring it out. You, you said the, uh, the valley of death for the, a lot of these companies <laughs> exactly. is 20 to 50. It, it, your, your processes are breaking down there. You know, when you're a small team, you can move really fast and be really efficient because there's not a lot of overhead in right. the sense of process overhead. Yeah. Once you start needing that overhead, though, to keep things on track and you don't have it, efficiency falls through the floor. So I think you see that in that, uh, not so much in the small, but in that medium, 26 to 50 employee size firms, yeah. um, they're figuring those processes out. And once they get them, once they get those nailed down, you know, profitability can shoot right back up. You know, that, that's so true. I remember when I had my shop and we were just four people and we could get through 30 marketing sites in a month. And I mean, they were good. I mean, these were high quality. Now, granted, CMSs weren't as big of a deal and all this kind of stuff. So, but, um, but once we got up to be like 35, 40 people, oh man, one of those projects could have taken us a month where we used to get 30. <laughs> right. It was just so ridiculous. But I think, I think you're right. The, the medium, the 26 to 50, they had the, the lowest profit margins of all four groups. And a lot of that probably is that they're going through that growth. The cash flow is weird. They're, um, trying to build the team, like all kinds of things are happening. So, you know, I have um, publicly expressed my feelings about RFPs. <laughs> I had a blog post that was uh, titled Really Effing Pointless, I believe, um, to, to the dismay of a couple of our clients. Right. Uh, who we got via RFPs. But I really thought, looking at the three years worth of research that we had, um, from 2016 through the end of 2018, you know, in 2016, about 75% of the shops reported that they responded to RFPs. And then in 2017, it dropped down to the low 50%. I think it was like 53%. And I wanted to do a happy dance, man. I was like, yes, because as an industry, we were so young and cocky and we're going to do it our way. Um, and then in 2018, I thought for sure it would go down again and it jumped right back up almost to those original levels where I think it was like 72% or something like that. I mean, but it was, it was a serious increase of like 20% of shops who said they responded to RFPs again. In, any thoughts on that? Like what leads to that? Well, I, so we were chatting a little bit at the uh, owner's summit and I, I think it really has to do with the function of how much work is coming in the door. Yeah. How easy is new work to find and to capture? And when new work is plentiful, I mean, 
you don't do RF, you don't need to do RFPs. When it gets a little dicier and you're competing more and you're seeing, you know, maybe the industry that you've been serving for a while is having a hard time, uh, you start doing more RFPs because your pipeline starts getting a little narrower. And I, I, I think this could be, we, I don't want to say it yet, but this could be a leading indicator of the health of revenue for the next coming months. I mean, you look at the RFP response rates and that could really tell you, okay, how easy is work coming to these companies? Now, and so when you, when you say that, when you say leading indicator, and I'm, I'm obviously not a researcher, although I played one the past years at the Bureau, <laughs> um, what would that mean for us? Like if we could start to get, pay more attention to who's responding to RFPs, the number of RFPs, that sort of thing, what would it mean to have a leading indicator? Oh, it, it, it lets you plan out farther. So it, it, if you have visibility into the next you know, nine to 12 months of revenue, uh, these kind of leading indicators are things we look for to give us even further visibility. And so we, we try to find ways to be more predictive, to be more accurate in our predictions. Right. And as long as we can manage our businesses uh, with good and accurate predictions, it's going to make it a million times easier. Uh, well, we, you know, after this podcast, let's figure out what we're doing here, Nick. <laughs> yeah. We need, we need to get more access to this information. The other thing about RFPs we found was that shops that did respond to them grew 33% faster than shops that didn't. Yes. And obviously, again, we're, we're kind of looking at it and I'm backing into a rationale a little bit, but I think for a lot of shops that have decided that it's, it's time to hunt again, mm -hmm. right? The right. gathering's going great. Account managers are getting hired throughout the community. We're seeing account managers, one of the fastest growing hires, um, that just based on seeing it, not necessarily any data there. So people are, you know, they are farming those current accounts, but the ones that are going out after RFPs um, and some of the ones that I've talked to, I think they've made decisions that there's certain type of work they want. There's certain things they're focusing on and they are just going to go for it. So that's also a growth mindset, right? Right. Definitely. It, it goes back to that. How much effort are you spending on generating new business? And, and right. the ones that go and spend effort to do that and then they make a, you know, a conscious choice that, hey, I'm going to go after new stuff. Um, I mean, it, it, I think it permeates the, the firm. And, and if we look at our larger shops, the, the 50 plus, they probably have dedicated RFP people yep. or at least a really well-honed process that, that core people on the team can grab and go with that helps them go faster. Exactly. And then uh, we also got to that, the, the discussion that always gets people's backs up is that idea of billing methodology and how people go for it. And uh, we have seen over the three years of doing this that value-based has gained more and more traction, but so have retainers. So when we started looking at it and say, okay, what are we gonna do? Um, if we looked at three years ago, it was retainers and then time and materials, oh no, I'm sorry, retainers, fixed bid, time and materials and value-based. And then two years ago, it was retainers, time and materials, value-based and fixed bid, and then Last year, it ended up retainer value-based time materials and fixed bid. So it, it was amazing to see value-based overtake. But then we also said optimal pricing models, not necessarily what they were acting on the most. So talk about that a little bit. What, what do you see when you see this? 
So I think the the value based coming up is, like we said, that's that's pretty poorly defined. It, it's really you know that could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Yeah. And but I, I think that that's really getting at the heart of what are your services value to your clients. And when you think about that and you think about how you make decisions, when, you, when that's your mindset uh, throughout your company, you're going to make more decisions to create more value for your clients. And you're probably going to earn more on those decisions. Yeah. And I think you're right. It's a mindset, right? It's uh, you're looking at what is the value versus what is the market necessarily. Right. And again, until the community can come to an agreement on what value-based pricing is. And, and I'd mentioned to you when we were in Austin, you know, we, we asked for the community to define value-based, just an open-ended question. What is value-based pricing? And of the 130-ish answers we got that year, I could only call it down to seven definitions. <laughs> <laughs> I tried really hard, but no, it, it's going to be impossible for clients to understand when there are a retainer model that's firmly in place and time and materials, it's easy to understand Right. Um, for value-based, called value-based um, to get traction. But at the same time, you've got Rob Hart talking about the value-based hour um, because look, lawyers charge 350 and plumbers charge 80 and that's value, right? right. It's, it's put into that that smaller mark. Or if you're charging for sprints, like how much do you charge for that sprint? But if you have that mindset, if you offer value-based pricing, not necessarily follow it with you know everything that you do, those firms grew significantly faster yes. than those that did not offer value-based pricing. Do, do you think that is really about the mindset or is there something else at play? I mean, it, it, it could be a few things, but I, I think the, the mindset thing makes the most sense. You know, you, you look at de-risking and de-risking your revenue sources and mm -hmm. retainer is, I, I think it's going to be hard to dethrone just because of how much risk it takes off of the agency and off of the, the digital services company. Um, Value-based does it a little bit in the sense that you're, you're typically earning more. So you can build up larger reserves, even though your revenue might stay a little lumpy. Um, but I, I think that the, the retainer thing is still going to stay pretty large. And the, the value based being a mindset, you might see a mix where retainer uh, starts adding more, like the value of the retainer starts driving up a little bit. Now that would be interesting. And, and I know from shops that I've talked to that, when they've got those retainers in place, and the, the term membership is becoming much more frequent. Yes. Um, the membership model, which mm -hmm. is kind of like a, a very personalized retainer uh, that also has a dedicated team, and there's many other elements to it. But, but at its heart, it's still that monthly number that's getting charged. Uh, what's interesting to me is that it seems like the ones that have the strongest base of retainers are the ones that are talking about value because they probably feel they can add a little more risk into what they're doing. Right. Right. I agree with that. And then we start to look at the services that are offered. And one of the things we thought based on the trends we saw last year 
were that was that um, we were going to see more strategy and more research in terms of the the revenue, in terms of what was generating the most revenue. Mm-hmm. So when we looked at it, we saw digital strategy make a jump almost two spots up, right behind web design and development in terms of the highest revenue generating services. Now, web design and development is such a big bucket, but we all do so many customized things that fall into those skill sets. I don't think that one's going anywhere for a while. But to see digital strategy and UX strategy jump up, um, that felt pretty strong. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. It's, I think it's good for the the basket of companies even because you're, you're going to be able to charge more for that. You're going to earn higher margins on that. And companies, like your end users, your brands and your companies that you're working with are demanding more of that. You know, there's a lot of in-housing happening with, you know, different agencies picking or different agencies getting bought up by brands. And you have that, how do I differentiate myself? How do I insulate myself to that? And the strategy piece is one piece that um, they really have trouble uh, replicating in-house. Oh, and, and that's been true since the, the early 2000s when uh, Include, Marty Ringline's shop, got bought by Twitter. They bought the front of the house, and it was strictly for the R&D that they were doing at Include, right? They didn't care about the development side. They took the right. design side because it was implementing that strategy. But I think, I think you're dead on there. And the other thing is as the, the baseline of web, microsites, and a lot of the things like that, the strategies, meh, you know, you, UX is kind of dependent on the tool that you're using. Um, so when you have a shop that's saying, this is going to be the highest return for you, this is how you're going to build it. They're also building in their own design and development from that strategy. So strategy is kind of like that, that lead service that you're offering so that you can get everything else. Right. So 2018 was a good year. Yeah. I mean, people overall had a good year in 2019. Everybody's feeling pretty good. Yeah, yeah, there, there's definitely optimism. It, it, it's there's not we we sliced it, you know, a number of different ways, and, and pretty much everybody's optimistic. Yeah, it, it, based on size, based on years that you've been around. I mean, yeah. it's, everybody is just saying it's looking pretty good. Now, don't get mad at me, <laughs> but we do need to address that elephant, which is that people are talking that there's a perceived chance, a potential for a recession. I knew you were going to say it. I didn't I want know. you to, but I knew you were going to say I it. Know. But none of the numbers are looking at that. Yes, the, the world's in a weird place and good God, what's <laughs> going on in America? But it doesn't look like anything is pointing towards a problem in our space. No, and, and we do, at Promethean, my partner developed a a pretty predictive recession model. We use a number of leading indicators that, um, that some of them are flashing warning signs. I I, I don't want to say, Hey, it's, it's impossible. Everything's rosy. There are, get him, get him. (laughs) Right. There are some warning signs, uh, but on the whole, things look pretty solid. Still, the consumer is still decently strong despite the, the recent retail numbers that came out um, and, and you're going to lose a lot of money if you bet against the American consumer. 
I will say, when I have been told that the economy was on the ropes, I still can't get a parking spot at the damn mall. Right. Right. Well, mall <laughs> might not be a good barometer yet, but maybe it's a, a very nice outdoor mall. <laughs> okay. They I'm have sure. an Apple store. Oh yeah. That's all. Ooh. Ouch. Okay. I see what's going on. <laughs> well, if we're gonna, you know, get a little chippy here, let's talk about some of the challenges we are gonna face though. Yeah. Right? So attracting and retaining qualified talent. Yeah, that's always going to be a challenge. I mean, you look at the number of firms that are competing for really high-end talent, and it's, yeah. I mean, you look at the growth numbers and the optimism that some of these firms have, and you can't you can't grow just by throwing somebody fresh out of school in there. You need qualified talent. No, that's it. And, and there's so many different companies showing up to educate people on building for the web, research for the web, strategy for the web, um, writing for the web, being a generalist for the web. They're universities, I guess, how they're defined, or maybe they're, they're called schools showing up. Yeah. There's a lot of talk about Google and Apple and Instagram and all of these types of uh, organizations starting their own schools, right? And then we've seen it in the community. We've got a lot of people who have basically started their own apprenticeship programs and they're putting 20 or 30 people through them and taking three or four of the best right. and saying you're on the team now. So I think we'll see a lot more of that uh, coming through 2019, just people growing the talent that they need. Yeah, I think you're going to have to. The, the in-house built talent, uh, it gives them a reason to stick around too because the retention number, I mean, you can attract all the talent you want, but if you can't retain them, you're going to be spending so much on recruiters that you're, you're just going to be put under. So yeah. building that talent in-house and showing that you, frankly, you give a damn about people help yeah. goes a long way. And, and realizing that your talent pipeline is every bit as important as your work pipeline. Yes. Right. And so you're going to have to keep filling it because guess what? It's the nature of it. People are going to move in this industry. People move really quickly. Um, that would be something you and I should look at is like, what's the average length of stay for different people in different positions, because I think that would help uh, the whole community as well to just understand that it's just the nature of it. That would right? be, yeah. And because and we can look, we look at it on a whole, right? We, we look at what's your average turnover in a year and it's yeah. around 30%. Yeah. So let's, let's drill into that for the, the next report to figure out what are those roles and, and how's that working. Yeah. Um, and then managing cash flow and growth. I mean, we talked about it a couple of times, but that's definitely one of the big struggles too. Right, right. They go hand in hand. You know, you, you, you need to, your working capital expands when you try to grow. And unless you have the cash flow and the, the access to capital to, to finance that, it, you're going to be in a world of hurt and it's, it's going to look great from the top line. But once you get to that free cash flow uh, yeah. calculation, it, it just makes it so much more difficult. And then we get to sales and new business development. That's, that's kind of the trifecta of our challenges here. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes from a lot of organizations realizing they're going to have to go after some of these higher level, different skill set uh, types of work. And as technology changes and the types of projects we want change and what clients want change, it changes everything about the process. So not only do you have to find people that you can trust that are doing a good job, you have to figure out how to implement them within your organization and you have to keep them educated because everything's changing so fast. 
Yeah. Yeah. It it goes back to that attracting and managing talent a little bit because a lot of owners uh, in the smaller end of the spectrum are handling all of the sales or a large portion of the sales and new biz definitely. And once you have to transition that off to another person, um, figuring out how to hire through that, what, what type of sales organization you want to have, um, you know, they, they, I get why that's a key challenge. It, it makes a lot of sense. Well, Nick, thank you. Uh, we've kind of gone through and hit on the highlights. And uh, is there anything you want to share about Promethean? I mean, I, I know you from having worked with you now, but just for people listening. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're problem solvers. We, we come in and we say we do research and strategy and we're, we're good at it. But what we're really doing is solving some of the hardest challenges that, that agencies and studios and digital services firms face. Um, we try to put better inputs into our strategies. We do better research, we think. So that should turn into a better strategy for, for, your, for clients at the end of the day. Well, I will say uh, you definitely did a better job than I've done in the past, but that's a pretty, I was a theater major. Let's just remember that pretty low hanging bar there, but no, you you're, guys are not a bad analyst yourself. <laughs> I appreciate it. When it comes to spinning up some stuff, I've been told I'm good. Um, well, thank you so much. And, and for those curious, there are two ways you can get a copy of this report. Uh, the first was to have participated. So if you're listening and you did participate and you included your email address, you had the option to be anonymous. Uh, I will be sending that out very soon. I mean, if you didn't, the other way is to consider membership with the Bureau. So we've launched membership and we've got three levels, a very simple level, which we call learn, which gives you access to a resource library, allows you to attend online events at no cost and also get to see all the event videos uh, that we've got going on from our events. And then the middle tier, which we call Connect. And at the Connect tier, you also get access to research like the report that Nick and I were just talking about. So that's a great opportunity for you as well. Um, and then at the highest level, we have our lead level. And at that point, we even throw in a concierge service. So if there's something special you want to find out, if it's a certain piece of research or you're trying to find a certain shop, let us know. But We'll put links to all this in the show notes so you can find out more. And with that, Nick, thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun. I'm glad. And I should say, appreciate your time over the last several months <laughs> because <laughs> Nick has heard from me repeatedly. So everybody listening, thank you so much. And we'll be back again next week. All the best. <laughs>